I'm Elijah Blumoff, and you're listening to Versecraft, a podcast about the art of poetry seen through the craft of particular poems. In each episode, I recite an exceptional piece of verse, then analyze its overall form, and follow with a sentence-by-sentence exploration of the content of the poem. To aid in understanding, you can follow along with the text of each poem included in the show notes. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Ohio Poetry Association. Welcome to the show, everyone. It's wonderful to be back with you all. For those of you who are new to the show or otherwise just want to get to the juicy stuff, you can go ahead and skip the next couple minutes while I briefly go over my travels from the past month. And I do mean briefly, because if not, we'd be here all day. And this isn't a Rick Steves podcast anyway. If you'd like more details on anywhere I went, please feel free to email me, and I'll be happy to expound further. As you guys know, I was off in Europe for a hot minute, hence the hiatus in the show. I started off in Thessaloniki, the second city of both the Byzantine Empire and modern Greece, and the cultural capital of Thessalian and Macedonian culture. I had a few days to myself to explore the cityscape and the old churches and museums, and had sufficient solitary reflection to write a series of poems on my experiences, which, with any luck, might be published at some point. After a few days, I was joined by my friend David, and we spent another day in the city before going off to hike the foothills of Mount Olympus, which was truly just as epic and beautiful as it sounds. From there, we we met up with my family in Crete and spent a week there hiking, swimming, and visiting cities and Minoan ruins. Again, absolutely gorgeous and inspirational fodder for a play I've been ruminating upon for the past year or so. From there, I went with my fiancée Laura to Madrid with a stopover in Athens. While in Athens, I had just enough time to show Laura the Acropolis and have dinner with the amazing poet Alicia Stallings and her husband John, which was a profoundly delightful experience. Alicia was kind enough to give me a signed copy of one of her books, and two days later went on to be elected the Oxford Professor of Poetry, one of the most coveted and prestigious positions in our entire discipline. I'd like to think that I have the last autograph that she wrote before attaining it. Alicia, if you're listening, thank you so much for being such a lovely host, and Mazel tov. For you to win was only poetic justice. Once in Madrid, Laura and I spent an entire day at the Prado, and Laura got to see the Hieronymus Bosch paintings she loved so much. We rendezvoused with David in Barcelona, and Laura went back to the States. From there, David and I did an absolutely grueling, somewhat sketchy and dangerous, but sublimely beautiful hike in the Pyrenees. After a few days, we felt pretty burned out, so we hitched a ride to southern France and explored the cities of Toulouse, Carcassonne, and Montpellier. We ended our trip in Montpellier with a bang by going to see the Gypsy Kings perform in a bullfighting arena and followed it with an all-night rave of dark techno music in a warehouse on the edge of the city. Exhausted, we hightailed it back to Barcelona, where we caught our planes back to the States. Once we got to the U.S., the airports were absolute chaos, but that's not worth dwelling on. Suffice to say that I didn't sleep in a bed between June 25th and 28th. The important thing is, I'm back, and ready to tell you guys what poetry is. Simply put, poetry is the name of my show, Versecraft. It is the art form which involves ordering language into consistent rhythmic patterns, otherwise known as meters. Language that is metrically organized is verse. Language that is not metrically organized is prose. Verse is poetry. Poetry is verse. They are synonyms. Language which is not organized into verse is not poetry, but prose. This sounds perfectly reasonable, right? So far, I haven't said anything remotely derogatory, nor do I intend to. Funnily enough, however, some people would howl with rage that I have the audacity to say what I just said. This is peculiar, because historically speaking, this definition is the usual one. I am not saying anything revolutionary in the slightest. So why would people be upset? There are two main reasons. 
The first is that my definition entirely excludes the work of many people who write non-metrically and yet consider themselves poets. Naturally, no one who thinks of themselves as a poet wants to be told that they aren't one, nor that what they write isn't poetry. It sounds like an insult. The fact is, however, that it isn't an insult at all, because I'm using poetry as a descriptive term rather than as a prescriptive or evaluative one. It's no more insulting to say that a prose writer isn't a poet than to say that a bat isn't a bird. More on this in a little bit. The second reason someone might balk at my definition is because it doesn't get at what many people believe is the activity which lies at the heart of poetry, namely, the writing of literature which explores the extreme possibilities and limitations of language, meaning, and thought. To people who believe that any literature which attempts this sort of linguistic exploration is poetry, that poetry is, as the cliché goes, language which draws attention to itself, my metrical definition seems irrelevantly technical. Both of these protests against my definition— the protest about the exclusion of non-metrical writing, and the protest about the essence of poetry, are rooted in categorical confusions about what poetry is. It is these two categorical confusions which I'd like to explore for the remainder of the episode. Before I do that, though, I must address the question which is burning in the back of my indignant listener's head. Namely, who the hell do I think I am? Who am I to say what is or is not poetry, or tell someone what they're doing isn't what they say it is? Why not just live and let live and worry about my own projects without bothering people about theirs? Why does having a definition of poetry even matter? That too has an easy answer. It matters because poetry as it has traditionally been understood, the beautiful art form of metrical composition, is dying. And it is dying all the faster because people no longer even recognize that it's a distinct art form to begin with. The word poetry no longer refers to it. Words and the use of words have consequences. If I didn't believe that, I wouldn't be a poet. We make spaces in our lives for certain words, not only in our speech, but in our curricula, on our bookshelves. And if those words lose the concepts to which they refer, those concepts in turn become lost to us, often without our even realizing it. I do not define and defend poetry because I think I have some sort of divine authority. I do it because I feel a moral obligation to prevent words and practices from becoming confused and abused to humanity's detriment. We now live in a world where, if you take a so-called poetry class, you might study Keats and Sylvia Plath side by side and never be taught that there is a stark compositional difference between them. A world where someone might call themselves a poet and even claim someone like Keats as an influence and yet be utterly unable to scan or write a line of iambic pentameter. Metrical writing, as a distinction, has become nearly invisible, and as such, has become untaught and unpracticed. We make space in our classrooms and in our libraries for something called poetry, and yet what we call poetry has been swallowed by non-metrical writing. If a poetry class is the only place anyone has a hope of learning how to write in meter, and yet no poetry class teaches meter, how will meter survive? If a poetry section is the only part of a bookstore where one might hope to find metrical writing, and yet it is clogged with non-metrical writing, how will meter survive? Now, you might respond, well, just do what everyone else has been doing for decades. Call metrical writing formal verse. There's your precious distinction, and call it a day. There are at least four problems with this solution, however. The first is that, as people have often complained, formal verse is a vague and therefore inadequate term. The second is that it doesn't solve the main problem of education and preservation. Most people who take a poetry class, or who consider themselves poetry fans, have never even heard of the term formal verse. And even if they did, it wouldn't carry the weight and importance befitting an entire artistic tradition. 
Thirdly, and related to this, the term formal verse implies that it is one special type of verse, one special variety of an art form, when, in fact, to write metrically is a discrete skill and an art form unto itself. This leads to the final and largest problem. What is verse, if not formal verse? What could informal verse possibly mean? How is it distinguishable from prose in any tangible way? No one has ever given a satisfactory answer to this. Beyond the issue of the survival of metrical composition, if poetry is to mean anything at all, it must have a definable, objective boundary. Some of my particularly astute and loyal listeners may have noticed that by defining poetry as synonymous with verse, and both as synonymous with metrical composition, I'm adopting a more severe stance than I've taken previously. In my Case for Meter and Rhyme episodes, I refer to what is called free verse as poetry in prose, with the idea that while verse definitely referred to metrical composition, the word poetry might be suited to encompass a wider variety of writing. This was a concession, which, while somewhat ill-defined, I was willing to make for the sake of diplomacy. This effort backfired, however, because some people focused much more on the in-prose part than the poetry part, and saw my phrase as an attack on the artistic legitimacy of non-metrical writing. This response led me to believe two things. Firstly, that I should just say exactly what I mean, because vague compromises are inevitably interpreted in the most titillating way possible. And secondly, that it is necessary for me to attempt to destigmatize the word prose for the poetry community. Let us begin then by addressing the first problem I mentioned, the problem of poetry excluding non-metrical writing, or to put it another way, the problem of people thinking that being called a prose writer is an insult. As with so much in life, it will behoove us to go back to Aristotle. In his Poetics, he identifies three genres of poetry, epic, drama, and lyric. This tripartite distinction is still the one we use today, although we have since expanded epic into the more inclusive category of narrative poetry. Now, let's consider these three genres. Are they always in verse, or can they also be in prose? Let's begin with narrative. Obviously, a narrative can be in prose. These days, almost all of them are, in the form of the novel or short story. Now think about it. Is there any debate about whether a novel is poetry? No. Do novelists get upset if you tell them they're writing in prose? Of course not. They know that what they're doing is legitimate and valuable, and also that it isn't poetry. And what does it take for a long-form narrative to be considered poetry? Why, it has to be written in verse, like the Iliad, or Beowulf, or Eugene O'Negan. Everyone accepts this without question. Now let's consider drama. Drama, too, can be in verse or prose. Shakespeare and Arthur Miller are both playwrights, but only Shakespeare is considered a poet. Again, this is common knowledge. Shakespeare wrote mostly in verse. Arthur Miller did not. Richard II is poetry, and The Crucible is not. Everyone accepts this without question, and if you were to accuse Arthur Miller of not being a poet, he would look at you not with rage, but with bewilderment that it would even occur to you to say such a thing. Now we come to lyric, and here's where the problem lies. Over the past several centuries, Western literature has gotten prosier and prosier. In the 18th century, novels came to replace epic poetry as the narrative form of choice, and plays and prose, once restricted to comedies, gradually came to be the universal status quo for all dramatic genres. As decades and centuries passed, narrative and drama became so closely associated with prose that many people forgot that they were also genres for poetry as well. As narrative and, dra- and drama became swallowed by prose, poetry came to be associated more and more closely with the lyric genre, 
until, at some point, poetry and lyric came to be seen as essentially the same thing. This conflation persisted even when, finally, the prosification of Western literature reached lyric in the early 20th century. This presented a unique problem. After all, when narrative and drama were swallowed by prose many years earlier, that was indeed an unfortunate development for poetry. But at least the distinction between poetry and prose in those genres remained clear, and still is clear to this day, as I've pointed out. By the time lyric was prosified, however, the genre had already become synonymous with poetry, and its prosification did nothing to change that. Now, for the first time, you had people writing prose and claiming to be writing poetry, merely because they were writing lyric. Because lyric and poetry had become so closely intertwined, and because lyric had historically always been written in verse, it did not occur to people to make a distinction between lyric poetry and lyric prose when the time called for it. Failure to make this distinction in the early 20th century has resulted in mass confusion ever since, and caused poetry, already a dying art, to die even faster because it is now dying invisibly. Moreover, the resources which are ostensibly devoted to the promotion of poetry are siphoned away to glut the increasingly popular art of prose lyric. We are now better equipped to understand and summarize the confusion behind the first protests I've described. People who balk at their lyric work not being considered poetry do so because they have made an innocent categorical mistake. They have assumed that poetry is a genre, equivalent to lyric, and bristle at what they believe to be an accusation that they have failed to create legitimate work in the genre they have devoted their life to. Hurt feelings are compounded by the fact that many people attach evaluative weight to the term poetry, so that to say that something isn't poetry is effectively to say that it is not good. Both of these beliefs are misplaced, however. In the first place, as we have seen, poetry is not actually a genre at all, but a mode of writing, which can be applied to any genre. And I mean any genre. Not only narrative, drama, and lyric, but science, as in the verse of Erasmus Darwin and Manilius. Philosophy, as in the verse of Lucretius, Empedocles, and Parmenides. History, as in the verse of Lucan. Or literary criticism, as in some works by Alexander Pope, Carl Shapiro, and John Hollander. Therefore, if I say that someone's writing is not poetry, I am by no means disputing its legitimacy as a lyric work, a short composition which imaginatively describes a noteworthy experience, thought, or feeling. Very importantly, neither am I disputing the quality of such works. If poetry is, as I believe it should be, a technical term rather than a vague positive intensifier, to identify that something isn't poetry is merely to point out that the item in question does not meet the description of poetry's definition. Sylvia Plath, E.E. E. Cummings, and Robinson Jeffers were all talented and interesting lyricists, but they were not technically poets. And this is no more of an insult than saying that Dostoevsky wasn't a poet. Moreover, if I say that Dostoevsky wasn't a poet and that Pushkin was, this by no means implies that I consider Pushkin superior. I am merely identifying the modes in which these respective writers worked as prose and poetry, respectively. To sum up then, much of what is called poetry today is in fact prose lyric, and is mistakenly called poetry due to the historical conflation of poetry and lyric. Poetry is misidentified as a genre, when it is in fact a mode of writing which can be present or absent in any genre. This is not simply my opinion. This is how the terms have been used historically, and how they are used to this day in every situation other than lyric, where they have become hopelessly confused. For the sake, therefore, not only of the survival of verse as an art form, but logical and categorical linguistic consistency, 
it is prudent that we universally adopt the technical definition of poetry as metrical composition. Now, let me briefly turn to the second protest. That defining poetry as metrical composition does not get at what is most vital and important about poetry, namely its intense and exploratory relationship to language. Here again, as you might expect, we have a categorical error on our hands. This time, the confusion is not between mode and genre, but between mode and style. Consider the following sample of writers. Demosthenes, Cicero, Thomas Brown, Edward Gibbon, Gustave Flaubert, Henry James, Walter Pater, James Joyce, Virginia Woolf, Vladimir Nabokov, Clarice Lispector, Shirley Hazard, and Cormac McCarthy. Each of these writers used language with formidable power and often breathtaking originality. Each of them dedicated their careers to painstakingly crafting the perfect articulation, the perfect expression of thoughts that words could offer. Each of them, due to their particular eloquence and experimentation, added to their readers' stock of available experience, perception, and consciousness, and permanently enriched the language in which they wrote. Another commonality? None of these writers were poets, and no one seriously claims that they are. And yet, all of them did exactly what my second protester would say is the special prerogative of the poet. That is because what my second protester is concerned with is not poetry at all, but a focus on style. As the litany of writers I just gave demonstrates, however, one need not be a poet to be a consummate stylist and have a particular concern for exploring the possibilities of language. This concern with language and style, what one might, for lack of a better term, call bellatrism, or perhaps to invent a new term, logonautics, is not by any means unique to poetry, but it is easy to see why someone might conflate the two. Because to write in verse is already to have a special concern for language, its effects and its arrangement, it is natural that, of all writers, poets would be the most likely to concern themselves with stylistic subtleties and linguistic experimentation. As with the conflation between poetry and lyric, because logonautics is so often associated with poets and poetry, it has, in some people's minds, become synonymous with poetry. Now, logonautics is certainly a pursuit worthy of the highest and most ambitious literature, provided that it is tempered by a concern for clarity and faithfulness to reality. However, to say that there is no meaningful difference between what, say, Virginia Woolf is doing and what John Milton is doing is surely wrong-headed. Both are masters of language. Both are artists of the highest caliber. Yet in Milton, there is a discreet and readily identifiable element to consider, which we do not find in Woolf, namely a consistent yet complex music, which gives structure and a variety of effects to his language that we do not find even in the most brilliant passages of Woolf. This is versecraft. This is the poetry, and this is the thing worth identifying, celebrating, and preserving as a mode of writing, which can be combined with any genre or any style to produce beautiful and profound works of literature. I would like to close by remarking that having such cut and dry distinctions between poetry and prose and amongst mode, genre, and style is not to discount the fact that there is a great deal of gray area as well. In fact, I believe that having strict definitions allows us to talk about these gray areas more precisely. Just as having a firm idea of what the color white is and what the color black is allows one to better understand the various shades of the color gray, so too a firm distinction between poetry and prose allows one to more keenly observe how particular aspects of both pervade certain writings, such as those of Eliot or Whitman or William Carlos Williams. To recognize that certain rhetorical styles adapt and make use of explicitly poetic techniques 
is to find new ways to appreciate both rhetoric and poetry, and to see new possibilities of cross-pollination. In short, I think the more distinctions, the merrier. The more precisely we can distinguish, the more we can both appreciate and understand the intricate information that constitutes our consciousness and the world around us. And if, in the process, we can learn to better understand, appreciate, and preserve one of the greatest art forms of all time, the art of versecraft, the art of poetry, that is a tangible, definable victory indeed. Thank you so much for listening and for letting me put a little verse in your universe. If you liked this episode, please consider rating the show or leaving me a review on Apple Music or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have friends who love poetry, or even better, friends who don't get poetry but wish they did, please let them know about the show. Thanks again, and until next time.